You all may be seated. Hey, just as you're being seated, if you want to take your Bibles, go to Matthew 4. We're back in the study of Matthew. Um, last week, we had guest speaker, Pastor Bob. Uh, and man, wasn't that just a glorious, wonderful sermon? Man, it was awesome. And I got to go have lunch with him, and he just really enjoyed his time with uh, just being with us and worshiping with us. And so I'm thankful he could be here. I'm thankful you came and uh, you were a part of that. Um, as you're getting just seated, you're turning to Matthew 4, I want to say a few things. Number one, don't forget that tonight we're having just uh, from 6 to about 7, I want to meet with the teens, and we want to feed them some nachos, and I just want to talk to them, and I want to really challenge them as we go forward this year as a youth group, uh, that we want to see God do some really big things in our group. And so if you have a teenager, have them here tonight at six o'clock. If you are a teenager, bring your friends with you. And uh, we're just going to have a really good time together. And then Wednesday night is midweek. Don't forget that. It's just a Bible study. And literally, that's what it is. It's not one person standing and teaching. It's just us kind of collaborately studying a text. And, and uh, I think Jill's going to lead it this Wednesday night because I'll be... I'll be suffering for Jesus out with about 10 pastors from around the nation. Uh, We're going away on a retreat just to fast and pray and study and and then after fast, eat some really good food and uh, just have some some time together. So I'll be gone uh, two or three days this week. Uh, but but put midweek on your calendar, come and be a part of that. And then what's really exciting is next Sunday, we're having some, we're gonna baptize some people. Uh, yeah, we're going to set up the tub right here in the sanctuary like we've done in the past. And so I just wanted to, hey, if you've never, if you are a believer, you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, you can call me, email me, talk to me after service today. We'd love to, to just chat with you about a little bit about baptism. We saw from Matthew 3, Jesus gave us the example of baptism. It is something that we are to follow through with as his followers. And so if you've never been baptized, you've thought about being baptized um, and maybe Next week is a, is a week that you could come and just be a part of that with us, and we'd love to talk to you about that and put you uh, in line to get wet and to testify before the church. Um, thank you for your testimonies again this morning. I've counted. There's not near as many this week as there was last week. Uh, but, but, all joking aside, the things that were said, you're going to find is very fitting to what we're talking about today. I'm not making, I, I, I have a, a part of this sermon that I'm going to talk about my past a little bit and how I think there are some things that if it would have happened, it would have been easier. And for some reason, you guys got in this mic and you spoke right into that this morning. And so glory to God for that. Matthew chapter four, today we're going to be talking about temptation, temptation. I know that there's not anybody in this room that struggles with temptation, but we all know somebody who does, right? And so I'm just gonna ask you for the next few minutes to lean in with us with this text as we just see what it has to say to us. Before we do, I think it's important that we define temptation, at least for our context this morning. Temptation is an invitation to embrace your own self-interest because come on, you know this to be true, right? We are never tempted to be selfless. We're never tempted to be over generous or spend too much time praying 
and in Bible study. We don't struggle with wanting to be too kind to unkind people or too loving to unlovable people. We are only tempted to do things that we think will benefit us. Unfortunately, what we thought would benefit us usually in the end ends up hurting us, doesn't it? See, Jesus makes this clear in the scriptures, Matthew 10, 39, if you want to look it up later, um, that when we make life all about ourselves, we don't just take a chance on hurting ourselves, but in fact, we lose ourselves. We lose ourselves. In the book of Matthew, we have the opportunity to follow Jesus from the moment he is introduced to the world to the time he sacrifices his life for the world. And today's story is important because Jesus, who has already went public with his ministry, Matthew 3, he's been affirmed by his heavenly father through baptism, Matthew 3. He's going to be led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the great tempter. And I would argue that this story and the truth or the principle of this story is every bit as important as the Christmas story or even the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And I'll plead that case in just a moment, so stay with me. But in Matthew chapter 3, John the baptizer is preaching repentance of sins and the turning back to God. And then he's baptizing anyone who chooses to follow God with their lives. Matthew earlier tells us that John's message was a part of the mission of preparing the way for the Lord. And then out of nowhere, Matthew 3, Jesus shows up on the shore as John is baptizing. Jesus shows up not just to confirm the message of John, but Jesus shows up to be baptized by John. Now, why did Jesus need to be baptized? He wasn't a sinner. He didn't need to turn from himself to God because he was God. We know that when we're baptized, like we're going to do next Sunday, we're baptized publicly to show our identity in Christ. But Jesus was baptized to identify himself with us. For Christ who never sinned became the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Then as Jesus comes out of the water, the spirit of God falls on him like a dove. And remember, we hear a voice from heaven, the voice of the father affirming his son by saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then Matthew immediately uses the word then. Matthew 4, 1. Look, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. All right. This is an odd break. But I cannot keep looking out and seeing Jan's face without giving God some glory. We prayed, Jan, we prayed for you. We prayed that God would heal you and not take you. <laughs> and there were some days there it was a little shaky. <sighs> I 
I can't look at her anymore this service. <laughs> we literally go, we literally go from Jesus' affirmation by the Father to immediately being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And one thing that just kind of jumps off the page here about temptation is the reality that temptation often comes immediately after a spiritual high. In fact, that's usually in my experience when I am most tempted. You have this mountaintop experience, you're riding this spiritual high and the enemy makes it his quest to knock us off so he begins enticing us back down the mountain. Our church experiences this collectively. We, we feel the greatest attacks from the devil in our church when we are experiencing a, a moment of growth or blessing or this new birth of ministry in some way and the, and the devil just begins to attack. So we need to be alert of our vulnerabilities and be ready to stand firm against the great tempter. More on that in just a moment. But verse one, it says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and he became very hungry. Perhaps the most obvious verse in all of scriptures. You don't eat for 40 days, newsflash. You're going to be hungry. (laughs) Come on, we're hungry after four hours. Jesus has been fasting 960 hours. Verse three, during that time, of course, during that time, the devil came and he said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, interesting that God has already affirmed Jesus as the son in chapter three, and the devil shows up and immediately says, if you are the son If you are the son of God, you tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, that might not seem like much of a temptation. Bread is not a temptation for us unless we're on keto. Bread is not even the issue in this text, really. There are several examples of Jesus in the New Testament breaking bread and enjoying it with his family and friends. It's not the what here as much as the when and how. The devil attacks Jesus at his weakness. Jesus is starving because he hasn't ate in 40 days. So this temptation is real because bread sounds really amazing when you haven't ate in 40 days. And we're not talking just any bread. We're talking Texas Roadhouse rolls with cinnamon butter. Can I get a witness? But Jesus isn't in the wilderness fasting so he can make delicious bread. Jesus is in the wilderness fasting to prove that his heavenly father can be trusted even with his most physical needs. So, verse 4, Jesus says to the devil, no. The scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3, which in context is the children of Israel in the wilderness, hungry and complaining about if God can be trusted because they're hungry. So God provides them manna from heaven to remind them that he is sufficient for every physical need and desire they have. So verse five, the devil transports. I don't think it was really a transport. They probably walked there, who knows? But the devil took Jesus to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point in the temple. 
And he said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on the stone. So we have this change of scenery and we have a change of tactic. What we learn here is that Satan can quote scripture too. In fact, he's quoting from Psalm 91, 11 and 12. Isn't that baffling? Satan is certainly misusing the scripture here. That's, there's nobody that does it better. And, and there is an important principle here. It's a tactic that, this, that, that our enemy, Satan, still uses every day. Scriptural manipulation is nothing new. And it is still used every day to justify people's sinful lifestyles. Hey, you don't have to look past yourself to find someone that tries to manipulate Scripture to make you feel better about your sin. Anything can be justified. Anything can be justified by just a little twisting of God's word. (laughs) But Jesus responds in verse seven, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy six here, Our only defense, let me say this and we'll move on. Our only defense against twisted scripture is scripture in context. That's it. Like you don't have to have this amazing argument. You don't have to be able to uh, out apologetic anybody. It's just you, the only defense you have against manipulation of scripture is to take God's word in context and see what it is that he was intending for his audience and in return for us to hear and to obey. That's it. Verse eight. Next, the devil takes him to the peak of the very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And here's what he says. I will give it all to you if you will kneel down and worship me. And finally, Jesus has had enough. Get out of here, you idiot. Get out of here, Satan. Jesus told him for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, verse 11. Then the devil went away and the angels came and they took care of Jesus. There's so much happening in this passage, so we're not going any farther this morning. And I do want to make just three or four observations about this text and maybe some homework for us um, to go and practice this week in obedience. The first observation is this. The text gives us an inside look at the devil's playbook. The two things that the devil most constantly bombards us with, this is so important, is identity and idolatry. The devil wants to sow seeds of doubt about your and my identity in Christ. All the way back into the garden, Satan shows up. And how is he bombarding or attacking or attempting Adam and Eve? Just subtly, did God really say? What what if I told you the truth is if you just eat of that tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Here's the problem. They were already created in the image and likeness. They were already like God. 
The devil was selling them something that he couldn't even offer, but he's just planting these seeds of doubt that God was unworthy of their trust because God was trying to hold them back. It's the, sca- it's the same scheme that he uses today on every one of us in this room. Did God really say? Can God really be trusted? If God really loves you, where is he right now while you're going through the darkness? Why is he allowing that to happen? What if I told you he's just holding you back? He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be like him. Those are the seeds. Those are what, it's all a ploy to get you to doubt God's sufficiency, that he will supply your every need as his son and daughter. Identity, and then there's the idolatry. Every idol that competes for the worship of our hearts flows from one of three categories. That's it. We don't like to oversimplify things, but it really is as simple. These three categories come from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It's going to be on the screen. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for one, physical pleasure. Two, a craving for everything we see. And three, pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. The three categories, pleasure, possessions, positioning. Every idol we struggle with comes from one of those three places. And we see all of those playing out in our text here. The stones of bread is a temptation of pleasure to fulfill physical need. The temptation to jump from the temple and have angels catch Jesus speaks of his positioning or his authority. It would have publicly revealed him as the ultimate authority as God. But he didn't come to be this reigning king. He came to be a suffering servant. And so he had to wait for the timing of his father. The offer of all the kingdoms of the world, if Jesus would just bow and worship Satan, was a temptation of possession. Interesting here that Satan is trying to sell what he doesn't even ultimately possess. I'll give you all the kingdoms. They were already gods. God created the kingdoms. But that is Satan's MO. He entices us away with empty promises, doesn't he? You know that because you've experienced that. We've experienced that. The second observation from our text is this. We must combat our temptations the same way that Jesus did here. Jesus has given us an example to follow, and it's not a sermon, it's not a retreat or a conference, it's not a self-help book, it's not a worship song, it's the very word of God. It's all we have to stand against the schemes and temptations of the devil. I believe the psalmist had this very idea in mind in Psalm, when he penned Psalm 119.11, he said this, I hide God's word in my heart, why? So that I won't sin against God. We fight against the devil's arrows of temptations by taking up our shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the very word of God. Question, how many days of the week are you tempted? Seven. So the number of days that you are seeking God through his word should not be less If you are not reading and studying God's word consistently in your own life, you do not stand a chance against the schemes of the devil. You will be deceived. 
and you will fall because you're not strong enough on your own. So, to get, so if that's you, you're like, I'm, I'm tempted seven days a week, but Sunday's enough for me for the word. Just, I'm just warning you, get used to discouragement and depression at best, defeat and fallout at worst. The truth is you quit studying God's word and you keep allowing the devil to throw his temptations at you and you will be a statistic before long and your chair will be empty before long. The third observation is this. This is my favorite. This is where I'm going to camp for just a moment. Jesus successfully fought off every temptation that the devil threw at him here in chapter 4. And newsflash, in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7, in chapter 8, every page of the scriptures, Jesus perfectly overcame the temptations of the devil. Listen to this, Hebrews 4. So then, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, if you're taking notes. So then, since we have a high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. How does he understand? For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So, I don't know if you write in your Bible, but I just put, I'd underline so, put parentheses around it or something because so, what, what, what the writer of Hebrews is about to say is because of what he just said. He was, Jesus was tempted like us, but he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There will be, there we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when, not if, when we need it most. Why will we need grace? Because we will never, ever be perfect against temptations. Ever. <laughs> we can come boldly to God, not because of our doing, but because of what Jesus did. And this, this text this is just a glimpse of a much bigger truth about the gospel. Look at me. There is no death and resurrection of Jesus if he does not present himself as a perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb. Jesus was tempted as we are tempted, but without sinning. And we, we are the ones who benefit from that. Do not miss this because this was one, this perhaps still is one of the greatest frustrations of my young Christian life. So if you're a teenager in this room, listen up. I never thought I would be good enough for God because I was never good enough for me. This was a struggle my entire teenager life. I grew up in a Christian home. Dad's a deacon. Mom's Sunday, every teacher you can imagine, Sunday school, Bible school, you name it, my mom taught it, church camp. And somehow I assumed that God would never be happy with me because I could not ever get it right. I could not live up to God's standard, and I was fearful that he would eventually give up on me. 
I found myself praying. <laughs> I still picture being in my room, just God, God, I did it again. I know I just prayed yesterday that you would help me, but I gave, I gave in again. And then the next day I'd find myself praying, God, I did it again. And I just prayed over and over for God's forgiveness. And I, I was so scared that eventually God would stop listening. So I stopped praying. This twisted mind, I just figured that at some point I only had so many prayers of forgiveness. And so why would I keep praying for God to forgive me of something I know I was going to do again tomorrow? So I just stopped praying. And I was always discouraged. And I was always defeated. Why wasn't I good enough. I didn't want to read my Bible. I didn't have any desire to pray. It was a constant struggle for me. And nobody else seemed to have that same struggle. Everybody else seemed to be able to be good enough. But I knew in my heart, I, I, I couldn't. I, I, I just couldn't get to that standard. I believed in the death of Jesus for my sins. I believed in his resurrection. I believed that his resurrection was victory over sin and death. But there was a disconnect between the truth of who God was and who, what he did and my everyday reality. And here was the missing link. The missing link for me was the perfect life that Jesus lived on my behalf. I didn't hear that. Maybe, maybe they preached it growing up. I didn't pay a lot of attention. I'll just be honest. But I don't remember that ever being lots of death and hell. <laughs> no, and that's good. Jesus preached a lot about death and hell. So I'm not bashing that. I just, a lot about the birth. But I didn't hear a lot about the, the significance of Jesus living a perfect life life for 33 and a half years. And I want you to hear this. Jesus had to be perfect in Matthew 4 and everywhere else because he knew that there would never be a day in my life when I got it perfectly right. And if you're young and you're struggling with the same things I just talked about, do not check out. You can check out in about three minutes. You don't even have to listen to the end of the sermon. This might be the one thing that's going to save your life from all the discouragement and all of the depression and all of the I can't, because you're right, you can't. But the good news, part of the good news of the gospel is not just the birth, death, and resurrection. We've got to talk about his life. We've got to talk about this perfect sacrifice that he did not once give in to temptation because he knew every day we would. This is still a struggle at times, but now I, I know that I have to preach to my own unbelief. I just say, Rick, you are good. I just look in the mirror. Rick, you are good. Not because of anything you will do today, but because of what Jesus has already done on your behalf. Today, I am good because I rest in the finished work of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I still mess up. I still sin. I still give in to temptation. I'm still deceived by the great tempter. But my value is not found in my wins or losses anymore. My value is found in Jesus who never, not once, got it wrong. Jesus never lost when it came to the game of temptation. And that's for my and your benefit.
It's why I think it's a sin. Listen, you sin and then you kind of just waller in your shame. I don't know if wallering, which is a Fredericktown word, I don't know if wallering in your sin might not be the bigger sin than the actual sin that you committed to get you into the wallering. Because when you live with your shame, you have forgotten the perfect life that Jesus lived for you and for me. It's like we just kind of take that out of the gospel. It's the good news. There is no, Jesus, God does not accept Jesus' sacrifice if Jesus doesn't live that perfect life. And you are a sinner. And you are a mess up. And you are a failure. Not very much self-help here this morning. But here's the good news. You already know that. And so does God. That's why he sent Jesus. By the way, this is not some Jesus did we can't cop out. It's not that... It's not that at all because, yes, even though it's true that Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf and then died and came back to life victorious over sin and death, he also gives us his resurrecting, resurrecting power through his spirit that dwells in us, not just so that we can deal with temptations, but so that we can destroy the temptations in our lives. We have the power to stare the devil in the face and say, no, not because you have the power, but because of the res- The Bible says... Romans, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave dwells in us. The same power that gave Jesus the opportunity to stare the devil, the great tempter in the face and say, get away from me, is the same power that's in you and I that we can say, get away from me. Colossians 1 19 through 22 says, For God in all of the fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. I didn't know that verse growing up because I would have said, no, I've got some faults. And I needed somebody to speak into my life goes, we know. That verse isn't saying that you are holy or blameless or without fault because of anything. Do you read there anything you've done? It's because of the finished work of Jesus that God accepts us. There is good news in the perfect life that Jesus lived. The success of fighting off our temptations or, hear me, our failures of giving in to our temptations has nothing to do with our positioning in Christ. That was my fallacy growing up. Every time I said yes to the devil, I thought God had turned his back on me. I better not die in this condition. I know I just said some words I probably shouldn't have said. I hope I can ask God to forgive me before I die. Man, that's a miserable life. 
You're never happy. That's the point of Jesus perfectly fulfilling his role of being the spotless lamb on our behalf. The next time you are deceived by temptation and you give in to the sin, the next time you are deceived by temptation and you give in to the sin, I want you to stop and I want you to thank God for Matthew chapter four. Just go ahead. Don't spend any time wallering. I mean, even, hey, even if you can think of it while you're sinning, just say, God, thank you for the truth of Matthew 4 and the principle of the truth that it, that it paints for the good news of the gospel, that my positioning, my being accepted by you has nothing to do with how I behave in this moment, but it has everything to do with Jesus living perfectly on my behalf when I couldn't. Thank you, Jesus, for living perfectly for me so I can rest in your righteousness, even in my failures. Mm. All right, fourth observation, and I'm done. Satan does eventually flee here. In verse 11, we see that, right? He does eventually leave. Jesus' brother, James, in chapter four of verse seven says, so humble yourself before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You are not where you are forever. If you are in a season of darkness, if you are in a season of temptation, can I encourage you by saying you are not alone. Jesus understands your temptation. He is with you. He is for you. He promises not to leave nor forsake you. You also have a gospel community, a gospel family that is in this with you. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says this, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. That's why, look at me, that's why being vulnerable and confession in the family is so crucial. I'm not making excuses this morning. I'm not a victim. But how, maybe, maybe not, could my life have been any different as a young Christian if I heard some people get in a mic and say, I'm struggling. Like when I had no desire to read the Bible and pray, I'm like, what's wrong with me? I'm supposed to be this Christian, and that should be the very thing I want to do with all of my life. And I, how much encouragement would it have been for somebody that I look up to so much to go, you know what? I struggle to read and pray. And I'm like, oh, you do? You do. But it was like, hush, hush. It is so important that we understand we're all sinners. We all fail. Let's quit pretending we're good enough or we never make mistakes. Let's confess to one another when we fail. Let's confess one another when we're in the temptation, even before we fail. And in doing so, and here's, I don't want to do that. Then they'll know I'm a sinner. They already know. But what if, what, if your, what if your vulnerability encourages them? What if in, with you being honest about the devil's attack, they go, me too. And somebody else goes, that's how I felt. And then, this is what's beautiful about gospel community. And then you got somebody on that row right there with a little bit more wisdom because they've been around just a little longer 
And they say, hey, I was there once. Here's how God got me through that. That's how gospel community is supposed to work. I'm struggling. Me too. Hey, I had that struggle. Here's how I overcome it. I'll pray with you. Let's do this together. Yes, and then Jesus gets all the glory and the victory in that. I'm rambling. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. Three quick ways to resist the devil. Number one, be aware that you are vulnerable. If you just back up one verse there in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, it says this, if you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. Why? Because I used to say this a lot around here. I haven't said it in a while, so let me remind you. None of us are above any sin at any time outside of the grace of God. Like if you show up on the number, Channel 4 News, I'll never say, oh, I would have never thought that about them because I know the evil that lurks. So we must stay humble. We must be alert. Number two, identify your vulnerable spots. I know this ain't fun. This is homework this week. What, uh, 2A, what is your temptations? Write them down. Maybe don't write them down if you don't want people to see them. Put a lock code on your phone. Start a new note. I don't know. Maybe just a mental note. Start writing down. What is the things that I struggle with on a daily basis? To uh, be, when are you most vulnerable to those temptations? Is it a specific time of day or when you're exhausted or after the family goes to bed? Be honest with yourself and identify your greatest moments of vulnerability. Maybe even spend some time this week asking, are these temptations of pleasure, possession, or pride from 1 John 2? And then three is this, put up some guardrails based on the when, where, and how you are tempted. This takes some work here, but if your greatest struggle is not sinning after your family goes to bed because you do things and nobody's there to hold you accountable, hey, guardrail, go to bed with your family. Well, I can't. If you find yourself being tempted to be extra mean to people after so long with them, limit your time with them. A good night, a good time for me to counsel people is not Sunday night late. Especially if it's been a peeply day. If we've done a lot of events and we've been around a lot of people all day because I like to talk and at the end of the day, I, I don't really like people. And it's not a good time to say, can we talk? We'll talk, but I'm probably going to hate you. <laughs> Just kidding. Sort of. We've we got to set some guardrails there, right? If you're tempted to skip Bible reading at night because you're too tired, pick a different time to read the Bible. I mean, these are simple guardrails, but identify your vulnerable spots, your temptations, and then begin putting some guardrails up. These, these guardrails are not to like, hold you back, but they're, they're, they're to protect us from physical and spiritual and emotional and relational ditches. Because if we're not careful, we find ourselves wrecked financially or relationally or emotionally. And it's because we did not put up protective barriers. And then the fourth one's this. Pray. <laughs> it's the spiritual church answer. Pray. 
Luke twenty two forty, Jesus tells his disciples, as Jesus is about ready to go into uh, the garden to pray, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Here's what he says to the disciples. Pray that you will not give in to temptation. Notice he doesn't say pray that temptation doesn't come, because Jesus knows if temptation came for him, temptation is coming for us. He says, when it comes, pray that it doesn't overcome you. In fact, in Matthew 6, when he's literally teaching his disciples how to pray, one of the lines in that prayer is this, and don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one, Matthew 6, 13. You see, three things that Jesus relied on over and over through his life to overcome temptation that he faced, prayer, the word, and the spirit. And guess what he has given us to combat same temptations from the same enemies. Prayer, the word, the spirit. So here's our response this morning. Our response is going to be communion. Our response is going to be communion because we don't get a seat at the Lord's table because we've earned it. We get a seat at the Lord's table because he's invited us. And newsflash, you don't get to stay at the table because you're good enough. You get to stay at the table because Jesus was. (laughs) We don't sulk in our failures, but rather we rejoice in Christ's victory. Can I say that one more time? And the band's going to come and we're going to sing and we're going to do communion together. But hear this line. Don't miss this. We don't sulk in our failures, but rather we rejoice in Christ's victory. Our eyes are off of ourselves and our eyes are on Christ. The most vulnerable we ever see Jesus in the scriptures is in the garden. Pleading like great drops of blood as he's begging his father to find another way because he knows what's awaiting him. If there was ever a time for Jesus to be tempted to walk away, if there was ever a time for Jesus to say, you know what, I'm out. I've spent, I've spent 33 years with these people. They're not worth it. I'm out. Everything I've tried to do to help them, they just kind of, spit in my face, turn away, I'm done. And yet that's not what he says. He's pleading for the father to find another way. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the father's will was for the son's body to be broken to be beaten, beaten beyond even where people could identify him. It was God's will for the son's blood to shed. And it was all done for us. Not not so that we can preach this message and encourage you to leave here today trying harder, being better. But we take of the bread in remembrance of his broken body and we take of the juice in remembrance of his shed blood and we walk out 
of this place today, rejoicing that God accepts us not based on our own goodness, but by the perfection of his Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. I want to leave you with this verse. I just read this last night. It wasn't even part of the sermon until I read it. I'm like, I'm ending here. Because Jesus is praying to the Father in John 17. And look at this verse in verse 19. Jesus says, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Church, today we get to break bread together through communion. And you know what we're confessing? Our holiness lies in his sacrifice alone. And so here's what we're going to do. Sometimes we do it together. You're on your own today. There's a tray here. There's a tray in back. The band's going to lead worship. And you're going to get up and you're going to go find your communion. And you take it when you're ready. This is a song that we're just confessing. Hey, we need you, Lord. We can't do this on our own. We need you. We need your finished work. We need your constant just resurrecting power in us through your spirit. And when you're ready, you break that bread and you take of the juice. And you remember the price that was paid so that you and I, you and I can leave here today with our heads high. And we can say, we're good. We're good because Christ on our behalf was perfect. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. God, may we stop being discouraged, depressed Christians. We don't go on sinning. Paul talked a lot about that. God forbid that we go. It's not about just, oh, we're made perfect through Jesus so we can live any way we want. That's not what the gospel's about. The gospel is about that we'll never get it right. You've got it right perfect. And yet we are now blameless and holy, not so we can go on just living any way we want. No, we are under your lordship, under your authority. We want to live our lives in obedience to you, but we don't get it right ever. And that's okay because you knew that's the way it would be. And so you got it right perfectly. So God, our confession this morning is that we need you. We need you from the moment that we first become Christians to the moment you take us and we take our last breath here and we enter the gates of heaven. We need you. Thank you for what you've done on our behalf. God, may this not be a time of sulking or mourning. This is a time of rejoicing because the work has been finished. You are alive. Today you sit at the right hand of the Father interceding for us because you know you know we'll never get it right. And yet we strive to please you every day with our lives because we're unworthy of anything you've done for us.